This is Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR. For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has star talk on the constellation Taurus the Bull. Brent Habig from Two Creek Regenerative Farm describes his winter chores. Stephanie Phillips speaks with Michelle Poprowski at the Catskill Fish Hatchery in Livingston Manor. Jack Barnett from the Seeds Group shares comments on solar installations. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country after news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. U.S. military planes are reported to have made the first round of humanitarian aid drops into Gaza. U.S. officials say the airdrop today was carried out by three C-130 planes and that some 38,000 meals were dropped. President Biden authorized the airdrops yesterday, a day after dozens of Palestinians were killed while racing to pull supplies off an aid convoy. Israel says the victims have been trampled after Israeli troops fired warning shots. Health officials in Gaza Gaza say Israeli forces shot dead more than 100 Palestinians. The U.N. is calling for an independent investigation. A U.N. team visiting Gaza's biggest hospital has found that many Palestinians injured as a rush that aid convoy arrived in Gaza City on Thursday. They were wounded by gunshots, according to the U.N. The finding appears to contradict Israeli, uh, Israeli officials. The head of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Gaza, Yos Petropoulos, told the BBC that aid workers must be able to work safely. We need safety and security for the people of Gaza. We need it for humanitarian workers, and we need our equipment and humanitarian goods to be allowed in. We need member states to work together to make sure that crossings that should be operational are allowed to be operational and have the security and safety to make sure that trucks come through as many as possible every day. To Idaho now, where the state Republican Party is holding its presidential caucus today. And members of the press will not be allowed into caucus eyes to observe. Here's NPR's Kyle Mackey reporting. The Idaho GOP says it's restricting access to caucus sites in order to protect voter privacy and, quote, prevent intimidation by bad actors. The Idaho Press Club, academics and advocates for open government say the move undermines public trust. Jacqueline Kettler is a political scientist at Boise State University. If people have concerns about election security or integrity, closing the doors may increase those concerns, even among their own voters. Reporters are allowed into polling places during Idaho's state-run elections, but each state party sets its own rules for caucuses. Earlier this year, members of the press were allowed into Iowa's GOP caucus sites, but not in Nevada's. 
Kyle Mackey, NPR News, Victor, Idaho. Republicans in Missouri and Michigan also holding caucuses today. Tens of thousands without power in California, where a powerful winter storm is dumping snow in the Sierra Nevadas. The Lake Tahoe area is being hit hard. More than a dozen ski resorts have had to close, including Palisades Tahoe. Visiting from Reno, Dana Ader says she's never seen anything like it. I saw a big rig yesterday that was totally flipped over. It was gnarly. Officials are warning of whiteout conditions and winds topping one 100 plus miles per hour, a blizzard warning in effect through tomorrow. This is NPR News. Welcome back to Farm and Country. I'm your host, Rosie Starr. Coming up on today's show, Brent Habig from Two Creek Regenerative Farm describes his winter chores in northeast Pennsylvania. Stephanie Phillips speaks with Michelle Poprovsky at the Catskill Fish Hatchery in Livingston Manor. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about breeding trout. Jack Barnett from the Seeds Group shares his comments on solar installations. Jack was part of the recent Wayne County Agriculture Day event activities. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk Report. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. For Farm and Country, I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Charging overhead in the southwestern sky during the evenings is the constellation Taurus the Bull. Taurus is one of the oldest documented constellations, seen as early as 5,000 years ago. From the Middle East to Greece and even in pre-Columbian South America, the stars were seen as a bull. Taurus is seen as a V-shaped pattern located east of Orion. To find Taurus, extend the line that is formed by the stars in Orion's belt to the east and you will reach the V-shaped stars of Taurus. The bull is dominated by the bright red-orange star Aldebaran. Aldebaran is the angry red eye of the bull glaring at Orion. Aldebaran is a red giant star 65 light years away. It is near the end of its life, having run out of hydrogen in its core and swelled to its current size. Within Taurus lies one of the most famous supernova remnants. The Crab Nebula is the gaseous remains of a star that went supernova almost 1,000 years ago. On July 4, 1054, Chinese astronomers recorded a new star in the sky in the constellation of Taurus. This new star was visible in the daytime for three weeks and remained in the sky for almost two years. The Japanese, Arabs, and Native Americans also recorded the event. Today, the Crab Nebula is only visible through binoculars or telescopes. Venture out this week to see Taurus charging across the sky. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Winter is still with us, and so are the farmers that grow our food. Here is Brent Habig, owner of Two Creek Regenerative Farm, sharing comments on winter farm chores. 
Well, Rosie, as always, it's a pleasure to sit down with you. It's great to be right in the Cooperage where we have our farmer's market every Saturday. I'm running Two Creek Farm. We're a regenerative organic farm in Lakewood, PA. We're in the season of winter here. The weather has constant fluctuations, but as a farmer, let's talk farming here and now in winter in Northeast Pennsylvania. Well, it's strangely quiet, but busy. There's really a lot going on, but the days are short, so maybe it seems like there's more going on than there is. Um, We're feeding out all of our layers. We've got a big egg production business. We're feeding out our hogs, lots of hay to our sheep and cattle, water to them as well. But on the actual farming side, relatively quiet. And a lot going on in planning. We're planning for a big 2024. That involves planning our poultry. When do we get our chicks? What structures do they go into? How do we process them? Planning our veg garden, seeds, seed starting, transplanting. All of our grazing, we do a whole annual plan of where each animal is grazed throughout the whole season. We've got marketing planning, which markets will we join? We'll probably pick up a few extra markets. We do a lot of financial planning, what went well last year, what could do better in 2024, and then staffing. We'll staff up to a seasonal team of five to six workers on the farm. A couple of those will be apprentices. We just launched our apprentice program where we'll bring on new farmers to train and to learn about regenerative farming. There's more details on that on our website, twocreek.net. But yeah, quite active, planning everything, because when we get into thick of 2024, it will be so busy. We'll just be so crazy in the moment that we won't really be able to, to have the same clarity that we do now when we can kind of go through all this planning you know, much more slowly and much more carefully. Chewcreek.net has more information on regenerative farm practices, food items, and pasture walks for this year in 2024. This is Stephanie Phillips with Farm and Country. This morning, I'm in Livingston Manor to interview Michelle Poproski at the Catskill Fish Hatchery. I'll be looking at tanks that hold about 600,000 brown trout of various sizes, in addition to rainbow trout and brook trout. Michelle will tell you about it. Michelle, is there anything special about the genetics of the fish that you are raising? So there's a lot changing in New York State right now. Historically, we've been working off of, uh, for our brown trout, a genetic lineage that was produced in the 60s out of New Jersey to be frunculosis resistant. Frunculosis is a real difficult disease to handle in an aquaculture setting. If your facility were to get it, it's probably going to wipe out your entire 
stock. We don't have that anywhere in New York State, and our fish have been bred to eliminate that from happening. You mean you don't have the frunculosis? Correct. Yes, there's nothing like that in the system. And we work really hard with our biosecurity protocols to be sure we don't bring in any sort of diseases or invasive species. However, being that we've been working off of genetics since the 60s, in the past five years, we've been called to question regarding the survivorship and the catchability of our stock trout. So back in 2015, we started to reinvigorate some new genetics. And the lab in which our brood stock come from as eggs began to produce brown trout from domestic females that we've been using in-house, our, our existing stock, with a wild Oriskany Creek male. So we're trying to reinstate some new vigor. Those fish are only starting to hit the water in the western part of the state this year. Catskill will be producing the new strain of fish and stocking them beginning in 2026. So we've got those fish on site, those new strain of fish. We've done some studies on them. Everything's looking really great, especially regarding survivorship out in the wild. We're starting to retain populations into the next season. And while we're not trying to reestablish populations out in the wild, we want to be sure our product is out there for anglers to fish. So this is our way to, to enhance that and make sure it happens. As far as a hatchery setting goes, we don't have any significant challenges in this more wild strain, but we just kind of have to keep hacking at it and see if anything unveils itself because plausibly a more wild fish is going to be more difficult to raise in a hatchery setting where they're enclosed and they don't have the tree coverage or the deep holes to hang out in. Here they're they're really exposed to sunlight and we're, we're doing a lot of hand feeding versus them going out and foraging on their own. They're having food dropped in front of them. But everything's on the up and up and looking good so far. Great. You have other kinds of fish besides brown trout. Do they require different facilities? Yes. Depending upon what species you're raising, if you're getting outside of trout or even looking in lake trout compared to rainbow brown and brook trout, they have different behaviors in the native setting. The, the lake trout tend to find deeper water to hang out. You find them more, obviously, in lakes. You're not finding them in rivers. Certainly when we go outside of the species raised here, like the round whitefish, cisco, certainly sturgeon, those are species that definitely are taking a different type of facility and in rearing unit in order to to make the best products. Most Most places are raising those kind of fish in circular tanks. So you don't have facilities for those other kinds of fish? Not at our site, we don't, because we're not raising those species. But if you went to the Adirondack facility, you're going to see their circular round tanks. They're specializing in those round white fish. You can see that their practices are going to be different because it's a different species and they just have a different life history. They're living in a different way than trout are. If you were to go to the walleye facilities like South Otselic, you're going to see that they have earthen ponds. These are massive, probably 100-yard length earthen ponds that are just holes dug in the ground because the life history of walleye is different than trout and walleye will become quite cannibalistic to one another if they're left to their own devices. So they have to have the water kind of cloudy so that the fish can't see one another. Here, you want clean, cool water for trout. That's how they're going to live. That's their habitat. So at all a facility's layout, design, water, everything is going to be 
catered to what species they're raising. Michelle, can you describe the tanks that you have for your fish? Right, so they're different sizes based on the size of the fish. Our our troughs upstairs where the eggs are put once they have developed their eyes and they're going to hatch out into, those are made of fiberglass. The water is running through those troughs at five gallons per minute. We are a flow-through system, so none of our water is being recycled, so the water that enters is leaving immediately. It does get reused over some of our facility grounds, but it's not actually pumped and recirculated back to a tank. It's just flow-through. So we have the fiberglass tanks in the building here that the smaller fish are raised in. Wait a minute. How big are those tanks? Those are the ones that are about 13 feet in length. They're 17 cubic feet total, so they're 13 feet long by about a foot wide, and there's only about six inches of water in them. So they're pretty small. We put roughly 24,000 fish in those. Wow. Yeah, and they get pretty heavy as we get growing, but we have to keep a certain density in order for those fish to grow well. There has to be good competition in a rearing unit. Otherwise, food will just fall to the bottom and get wasted, and or you'll have some outliers. You'll have big fish or tiny fish. So your fish are all uniform or pretty uniform. We do our best to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, part, and a big part of that is an optimal feed regimen and then the densities. After they grow bigger, then what do you transfer them to? Sure. So after they outgrow the troughs, they're usually about three inches, maybe not quite, two inches, two and a half, and they're going to move out to the raceways. So those raceways are 210 cubic feet. They're about 30 feet in length, oh, probably two and a half feet across and about two feet in depth. So they're the kind of this intermediate between our smallest rearing unit and our largest fish grow really, really well in these rearing units. The water running through there is about 120 gallons a minute. Again, it's just clean, free-flowing water, not reused. And once they grow out of the raceway units, they get moved to our outdoor ponds. These are our largest rearing units. They are still rectangular in shape. But not fiberglass. Not fiberglass. Both the raceways and the ponds are made of concrete. These ponds have been here since the 70s, so they're in need of some good repair. We do regular repair on them as we best can here, uh, and they're sustaining, and they are definitely reliable, but they are made of concrete. They are subject to all the, the elements out here, whether it's the sun beating on them, the snow, the ice, everything, and those rearing units are about 90 feet in length, 8 feet across, and about 3 feet depth of water. So they keep getting bigger as the fish get bigger. Exactly, yep. Michelle, do you operate year-round today? It's kind of sleety and snowy. What about differences in the weather? Does that matter to you? It doesn't. We are not fair-weather fish culturists. We are out here like the mailman, (laughs) rain, sleet, snow, sunshine. Uh, This is a year-round operation. We would never be able to suffice what we do without... Uh, year-round operation and arguably we are in one of the busiest times of year because we have about 600,000 fish that are an inch in length or not quite an inch in length upstairs here and then we've got about 300,000 fish outside that are approaching nine inches to be stocked this spring. So we have the dedication of cleaning and feeding and taking care of those small 600,000 fish upstairs here in the building And then we have the same practices, just larger setting outside for the 350,000. So 
on top of fish care, this time of year we've got snow removal too and some, some ice breaking in, in our creeks so we can make sure that water stays free-flowing. This is our busiest time of year. And then we come into maybe maybe the most busiest time of year, I guess, once we start stocking because we've got the care for the small fish, we've got the stocking of the 9-inch fish, and then we've got all that snow removal as Mother Nature hands it to us. Yeah, I see the big trucks outside. I assume they're helping you with the snow clearance. Yep. Michelle, do you give tours of the hatchery? Can people just stop by and visit? Yeah, people can stop by any day of the week. We are open daily from 8 to 3 o'clock. This facility is open on the weekends, too. We're open on Christmas. You can come here and hang out. There is always a staff member on site because we are life support. I reside in the house across the street, and I provide any sort of response in the evening hours overnight when staff is not on site. So there's always somebody here. We're open eight to three. You are welcome to walk through and give a self-guided tour. We've got some signs posted throughout the place. A lot of reading material at our gazebo is there available. If you wanted to schedule a tour, we'd ask that you call ahead of time and we're happy to give a tour to a school group or really any, any group of folks local. That would be an interesting thing to do. So now you know, thanks to Michelle Poproski, how the DEC makes sure the fish it stocks are healthy. If you know a local expert for me to interview, email me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Is Jack Barnett with some thoughts shared at the recent Wayne County Agriculture Day. Jack Barnett is a local advocate for sustainability and solar energy. He volunteers with the Seeds Group in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. Hi, my name is Jack Barnett. I'm with Seeds, which stands for Sustainable Energy Education and Development Support. And the Penn State Extension wanted Seeds to be present here at Ag Day for Wayne County so that we could help people understand what solar is and how it works and defend a little against the high commission salespeople, high pressure salespeople who are not always telling the full truth about what solar is and isn't. So we're really here to help people be aware and good consumers before they take an offer that maybe is not the best for them. Okay, well, we are in Wayne County, so let's talk about what Wayne County people need to know. Well, solar is still a very expensive investment, but it can make your money back in 10 to 12 years. It's not got a lot of Pennsylvania benefits, but at the federal level, you get a good tax credit if you owe taxes. So that's an incentive. It pays up to 30% that way. And then the other thing is you don't pay as much on your utility bills. So when you generate a kilowatt hour of energy, electricity, you don't have to pay that to the utility because you produced it for free from the sunshine without any fuel. What is the importance of thinking about solar installation now? Why should we be thinking about this? 
Well, first off, you get to save money. That's a big deal. And that, and probably the most important that drives the most number of people. But also it's environmentally clean. So you're not polluting, whether that's local contaminants in the water supply, in the earth, in the air, but it's also not producing carbon emissions. So you're saving greenhouse gas emissions and helping to fight climate change. Lots of folks are interested in this, and they may not know how to go about it. What is your recommendation? So SEEDS offers a bunch of classes to help prepare people. We just finished a Solar 101 uh, webinar, and we recorded that, so it should be on our website soon. We have a webinar on off-grid solar, and that's for homes or cabins or places where the utility isn't nearby, and it's going to charge a lot to add to their network to connect you in. We have a specific session targeted for farmers who want to mix farm production with solar production. So it's called agrovoltaics, and it's going to be taught by Chelsea Hill, who's a Penn State Extension educator. Okay. Well, I'm standing in front of a giant solar panel here. Tell yeah. me about this. So this is a standard, what used to be the standard size solar panel. The new standard is bigger than this now. But this is a 370-watt panel loaned to us from Baselli Solutions for the demonstration today. And this is kind of the same kind of panel that would go on any home or possibly in a field for a solar farm. It's probably $350, $400 retail. And, of course, then you have to pay to have it installed if you do it professionally. The other thing Seeds does is that we train people in how to do it yourself solar. So at the end of April and early May, we're teaching a two-night workshop on do-it-yourself solar. Baselli and myself are the two instructors and include a hands-on demonstration the following weekend at a homeowner in Equinox. So it'll be a good project to learn how to do solar. And if you've been on a roof, you're comfortable on a roof, and or you've done home electrical wiring, then you can install solar yourself. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? We're coming through winter, and January was gray. Yeah. So, of course, winter is the lowest sun angle. It's low in the sky. But March 22nd or so is coming soon, which is the vernal equinox. And that's when we have equal parts day and night. And so you're producing more and more solar energy from our solar panels every day since December and into June. And, yeah, peak time is coming. Thank you. Thanks, Rosie. The Seeds Group is a reliable source of technical information for solar installation. Their website, seedsgroup.net, has information on events related to solar energy. It's a perfect day to go fishing The weather is so fine The mayflies are buzzing By the hundred dozen Grab a rod and go cast a line You can cast a dry fly With a wet fly rod You can cast a wet fly With a dry fly rod but in order to catch a 
Trout on the rise, choose a dry fly rod and cast a dry fly. It's a perfect day to go fishing. The ice is frozen thick. So grab your ice auger and the lower you favor, a flutter spoon might do the trick. You can cast a dry fly with the wet fly rod. You can cast a wet fly with the dry fly rod. But in order to catch a trout on the rise, choose a dry fly rod and cast a dry fly. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Brent Habig from Two Creek Regenerative Farm in Lakewood, Pennsylvania, Michelle Poprowski from Catskill Fish Hatchery in Livingston Manor, and Jack Barnett, advocate for solar energy from the Seeds Group in Honesdale, Pennsylvania. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM, on your phone or smart speaker, and online at wjffradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hey, this is DJ Chucks of Old School Sessions. Please join me and Selector Starkey at our new time, 8 p.m. to 12 a.m. Saturday night. Old school, baby. Old school, baby. Old school, baby. Old school, baby. That's old school sessions right here on WJFF, 8 to midnight, Saturday night, only on Radio Catskill. Hey, it's Steven Skeep. And I'm Aisha Roscoe. One of the things you